Hello, hello. We, our keynote address today will be delivered by Herman Daly, who is professor in the School of Public Affairs at the University of Maryland. Prior to joining the faculty at the University of Maryland, he was a senior economist in the Environment Department of the World Bank, where he helped develop policy guidelines related to sustainable development. He's received numerous awards for his work, including the Honorary Right Livelihood Award, which is Sweden's alternative to the Nobel Prize. Through his work, he has identified a key, a key distinction between economic growth, a quantitative increase in size that is constrained by ecological, physical limits, and economic development, a qualitative improvement in the state of our being. In so doing, he has helped reveal that economic growth that destroys our natural capital may actually be much closer to economic loss. It is a perspective that we as a society desperately need as we try to come to terms with our impact on the climate system and search for solutions that will allow the promotion of our continued prosperity. It is my great pleasure, and please, please join me in welcoming Herman Daly. Thank you very much, Paul. And I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt your lunch, so please continue chewing. I think I speak uh, loudly enough to be heard over the mandibular crunching uh, of, of everyone together. Uh, I told my wife that uh, I was going to be giving a keynote address to a workshop on climate policy. And she said, um, you mean an off-key address? And I said, well, yeah, probably that may well be what it is. Uh, she said, but at least don't sing to them, because then I know you'll be off-key. So I won't do that. But I don't know whether the degree to which this will be off-key, we can just leave that to be um, determined. But as you all know, uh, much better than I do from your work, the recent attention to global warming is something new and I think very, very welcome. Uh, most of the attention, as far as I can tell, I mean, it's given in various ways, but a whole lot seems to be given to complex global climate models. This seems to be a kind of focal point, at least in my experience, to uh, awakening the attention of, of people. Uh, that, too, is very welcome. I think that's wonderful. However, I'd like to back up just a little bit from the climate models and all of the policy questions that flow from them and raise a prior question, um, or at least a, a thought which I came across reading the works of a physicist named John Wheeler. And he made this statement. Uh, he said, we make the world by the questions we ask. We make the world by the questions we ask. I guess that's especially true for a physicist. You know, you, if you don't ask about whether quarks exist, you won't find out. And so, but I think it's also true for policy and social science. We make the world by the questions we ask. So I want to, I want to consider briefly and ask you to consider with me, what are the questions asked by the climate models and the resulting discussion? And what kind of world are they making? What kind of world do these questions make? And 
what other questions might we ask that would make other worlds? And could we ask other questions that might make a more tractable world for policy? So that's what I'm considering. Uh, the climate models, as far as I can tell, ask a number of questions. Uh, you can add to this, but the questions that I see coming out of the climate models. First of all, whether CO2 emissions will lead to atmospheric concentrations of 450 or 500 parts per million. When will that happen? And will that raise the temperature by two or three degrees Celsius by a certain date? What will be the likely physical consequences in climate and geography, and in what sequence, and according to what probability distributions? And what will be the damages inflicted by such changes, as well as the costs of abating them? And what are the ratios of the present values of the damage costs to the abatement expenditures at various discount rates? And which discount rate should we use? And how likely is it that new information learned while we're constructing the model will invalidate the results? Well, what kind of a world is created by such questions? I worry perhaps a world of such enormous uncertainty and complexity as to stifle policy and to make us just sort of throw up our hands. The scientists will disagree on the answers to just about every one of these empirical questions. So could we back up, at least think about backing up a little bit, and ask a different question that creates a different world? Uh, could we perhaps simply ask, can we systematically continue to emit increasing amounts of CO2 and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere without eventually provoking unacceptable climate consequences. I think scientists will overwhelmingly agree that the answer to that question is no. The basic science has been known for over 100 years. Svante Arrhenius set it forth. Um, the principle, basic principles and directions of causality are very clear. Um, now, true, the rates, sequences, and valuations are uncertain and subject to debate. But as long as we focus on measuring these inherently uncertain empirical consequences, uh, then I think we will overwhelm any consensus to do something now with ditherings about what we might someday do if ever the evidence is sufficiently compelling. I'm afraid that once the evidence really is sufficiently compelling, then our response will also be compelled, and that uh, there won't be any room left for policy debate. It'll just be all pretty well settled. Or to make the point more simply, if you jump out of an airplane, what you really need, you need a crude parachute a lot more than an accurate altimeter. <laughs> and, if you have been so prescient as to take an altimeter along with you, that doesn't hurt anything as long as you don't get so bemused in tracking your fall that you forget to pull the ripcord. So what's important is a crude parachute much more uh, than an accurate altimeter. 
Well, I think that's one question then that I would suggest we think about. Another question we might ask is, what is it that is causing us to systematically emit ever more CO2 into the atmosphere? Well, I think the answer to this question, I think I know the answer. It's not an answer anybody wants to hear very much. Uh, I'll give it anyway. Uh, I think it's the same thing that causes us to emit more and more of all kinds of waste into the biosphere, namely our irrational commitment to exponential growth forever on a finite planet subject to the laws of thermodynamics. It's just ain't going to fit together. Now, if we can overcome, for, if we can get above this growth idolatry, then we might go on to ask further questions, the first one of which I would suggest would be, how can we design and manage a steady state economy, one that respects the limits of the biosphere in all dimensions, including the climate dimension? But I don't find us asking that question. Instead, what I hear is a kind of wrong-headed, growth-bound question, specifically something like this. Uh, by how much will we have to increase energy efficiency or carbon efficiency in order to maintain customary growth rates in GDP? That's the question that I usually hear. Well, suppose we get an answer to that question. Say we need to double efficiency in 10 years, and by golly, we actually do it. Uh, so what? Well, then we will just do more of all the things that have become more efficient and therefore cheaper. And we will emit more waste, including greenhouse gases. The famous rebound or Jevons effect after the uh, economist William Stanley Jevons. Uh, a policy of efficiency first does not give us frugality or sustainability second. It makes frugality less necessary. In the 19th century words of William Stanley Jevons, quote, it is wholly a confusion of ideas to suppose that the economical, i.e. efficient, use of fuel is equivalent to a diminished consumption. The very opposite, the very contrary, is the truth. In more modern words that we've all talked and heard about, if we increase miles per gallon in our automobiles, we're very likely to travel more miles because it's cheaper. But suppose, suppose for a moment that we didn't. Suppose we saved the money instead. Uh, what then would we do with the money? Spend it on an air, airplane trip? Uh, buy a second house? Invested in a nuclear power plant or ethanol production? Or probably a better way to spend it would be to pay it to our psychiatrist for the low energy service of listening while we confess our sins. Yeah, but doesn't that help him to pay for his airplane trip or second house? I'm afraid Jevons has us by the tail. What? It is wholly a confusion of ideas to suppose that the economical use of fuel 
is equivalent to a diminished consumption. The very contrary is the truth. Our energy policy, as I read it, is all about this term, I see it for everywhere, efficient patterns of consumption. Efficient patterns of consumption. And not at all about sustainable aggregate levels of consumption. Two very different things. It is wholly a confusion of ideas to suppose that an efficient pattern of energy consumption is equivalent to, or even leads to, a sustainable aggregate level of energy consumption. But if we go for frugality first, that is, a sustainable level is first as our direct policy variable, for example, carbon tax or cap auction trade system, as has been spoken about so much this morning, I'm glad to see, uh, then we will get efficiency second as an adaptation to more expensive carbon fuels. Frugality first gives efficiency second, not vice versa. That should be, in my opinion, the first design principle for energy and climate change. Efficiency is an adaptation to scarcity that makes it less painful. It is not the abolition of scarcity, the so-called win-win solution beloved by politicians. The second thing wrong with this misleading uh, growth-bound question is the assumption that we need to maintain current growth rates in GDP. I mean, why else do we need all this energy and run the risk? Well, to make GDP grow. Isn't that important? Well, not, not so much. I think there's a whole lot of evidence that GDP growth in the U.S. and Western Europe at the current margin is, in fact, uneconomic growth. That is, growth that increases social and environmental costs faster than it increases production benefits. I mean, we recognize uneconomic growth in microeconomics all the time. It's the bread and butter of micro. Uh, but in macroeconomics, suddenly it disappears. As you just keep on growing. There's no, you know, no when to stop rule, no marginal cost equal marginal benefit. Whoops, let's stop now. Uh, that's, that sort of disappears. So um, I think we're in this, moved in this era of uneconomic growth that increases environmental and social costs, often unmeasured, faster than production benefits, usually measured. Growth that accumulates ilth faster than wealth. Ilth is a word from John Ruskin. I think we need to revive it and, and get it back into circulation. Um, well, I should say, though, that I, I do realize that there is poverty in the world, and there are many places where traditional GDP growth is still economic by any reasonable definition. All the more reason, though, to stop uneconomic growth in order to free up resources in ecological space for truly economic growth by the poor. I think that should be, then, a second design principle. Uh, you will not, f I've used this term, uneconomic growth. You will not find that term in the index of any economics textbook. 
In fact, you know, even my uh, word processing program underlines it in red, warning me that I probably made a syntactical error here and might want to reconsider. No, I didn't. That's what I really mean, uh, uneconomic growth. And it's not really hard to see how it is that real the reality of uneconomic growth can sneak up on us or has snuck up on us. Uh, we have moved from a world that was relatively empty of us and our stuff to a world that is relatively full of us and our stuff in one lifetime. Just in, in my lifetime, the world population has tripled. And the population of automobiles, buildings, livestock, refrigerators, TVs has vastly more than tripled, you know, thousands of percent. So we've moved from a, a relatively empty world to a relatively full world. And that makes a, a huge qualitative difference in economic thinking. Or it should, not in it, it should. Um, as we transform natural capital, that what the world was full of before we transformed it into us and our stuff, you know, as, as we transform natural capital into man-made capital, the former becomes more scarce and the latter more abundant. An inversion of the traditional pattern of scarcity. So that's, that's a key point. The traditional pattern of scarcity has been inverted. And this inverted inversion is furthered by the fact that man-made capital is often private property and cared for, and uh, natural capital is frequently open access commons and not so much cared for. So in the empty world economy then of the past, the limiting factor was man-made capital. In the full world economy of today, the limiting factor is remaining natural capital. For example, the annual fish catch used to be limited by the number of fishing boats and fishermen. No longer. The annual fish catch today is limited by the number of fish remaining in the oceans and their capacity to reproduce. Natural capital. Barrels of petroleum extracted used to be limited by drilling rigs and pumps. Well, nowadays it's limited by remaining deposits of petroleum in the ground, or alternatively, by the capacity of the atmosphere to absorb the products of its combustion. Now, there seems now to be a race between peak oil and global warming, between the source and the sink limits, but both limits are natural capital, and so from my point, it doesn't ma matter which one is the more limiting in this context. Well, economic logic stays the same as we have this change in the pattern of scarcity. Economic logic says invest in and economize on the limiting factor. That's economic logic. Doesn't change, stays the same. What's changed is the limiting factor. The limiting factor traditionally was man-made capital, the limiting factor now more and more is remaining natural capital. It's a nice parlor game to play at your table to see how many other examples uh, the, beyond the two that I've just given that you can name of natural capital becoming limiting whereas man-made capital used to be 
non-limiting. I'll, I'll leave that as, a, as an exercise. Um, well, the reason, I guess then, this is, a big, this is a big idea then, if this has really happened. This is then something that economists should have been paying close attention to. A change in the basic pattern of scarcity, after all, that's not trivial. But I don't think uh, mainstream economists have paid much attention to that. And I think they do not see um, why do not they don't focus on this. Why do they not consider this important? I believe they think that man-made capital and natural capital are substitutes rather than complements. It doesn't matter if you deplete natural capital because you're building up a very good substitute, man-made capital. No big deal. It's all capital after all. Uh, well, and furthermore, with substitutes, you don't have a limiting factor. It's only with complements that there's the phenomenon of limitationality, of limiting factor. So with substitutes, there's no limiting factor. So I, that seems to me then that they, they overlook. I'm not sure why they do this or why that's the case, but I, I sort, of sub, sort of think that they, they prize mathematical tractability more highly than conformity to the first law of thermodynamics. That's, I can explain that later, but that substitution is mathematically very tractable in production functions. Complementarity is not. But substitution very easily leads you, leads you to contradict the law of conservation of matter and energy in neoclassical production functions. That may not be the reason. You may have better ex explanations, and I would be interested to hear them. Um, now, but, the but whatever the explanation, the fact remains that natural resource flows and capital funds are treated in economic thought as substitutes when I believe in reality they're fundamentally complements and the limiting factor issue comes out. Well, in addition to this, uh, I think, very large error on the production and supply side of the economy, we have an equally monumental error on the utility or demand side the failure to take seriously the fact that beyond a certain threshold already passed in the U.S., welfare or self-evaluated happiness uh, becomes a function of relative income rather than absolute income. We are, um, it's how much better we off we are than the average that increases our self-reported welfare, not our absolute amount. Well, what does this mean? It means then that, well, it's impossible for everyone's relative income to increase. And so as absolute income goes up, it doesn't make us happier because our happiness depends on relative. The relative cancels out. So it's like the arms race. There's a self-canceling effect on uh, individual welfare, which renders aggregate growth rather impotent in increasing uh, overall general welfare. Now, I should say something nice about economists. Uh, 
they have been talking about this, you know, Richard Easterlin is, was one of the early pioneers in this, in looking at this, and uh, Moses Abramowitz, and more recently Richard Laird has written a book, and all of them have, have begun to look at this phenomenon, but in my opinion, so far, they've rather pulled their punches on the conclusions related to growth. I think they're very important conclusions that growth has become impotent as a general means for increasing overall welfare in, in light of this. They sort of soft pedal that conclusion, I think. Okay, enough of what's wrong. Uh, let me end by just considering, a, in the spirit of this conference, uh, trying to be a little more positive. Uh, can we offer a reasonable policy based only on first principles? Uh, yes, I think so. Uh, one such policy, and, and I'll just throw it, is, is, has been called ecological tax reform. What is that? A stiff severance tax on carbon levied at the wellhead or mine mouth accompanied by equalizing tariffs on carbon-intensive imports and with the revenues rebated by abolishing aggressive, uh, uh, regressive taxes on low incomes. What I, I've learned today that I really shouldn't say uh, equalizing tariffs. What's the term that was used? Border, border charge adjustments. That's a tariff. <laughs> never, never mind. It's, uh, it sounds better the other way. Um, well, such a policy then would reduce total carbon use, would give an incentive for developing less carbon-intensive technologies, would redistribute income progressively. Um, well, okay, I know there are some people raise some objections, uh, but how do we know the optimal tax rate? Wouldn't it be regressive? Uh, is there really a double dividend there, as some people have claimed? Look here, I can make a model in which there's not a double dividend. Okay. Once again, we make the world by the questions we ask. We need to raise public revenue somehow, independently of of carbon problems, we need to raise public revenue. So why not tax carbon extraction more heavily and compensate by taxing income lightly, especially low incomes? More generally, let's tax resource throughput, namely that to which value is added, the low entropy flow uh, from nature back to nature, what is ultimately and fundamentally scarce and does not have a sufficient price. Let's put a tax on that, that to which value is added, and then stop taxing or ease up on taxing value added. Now, whether you tax the throughput at the input or the output end is an interesting question, but I think in large part a matter of convenience although I generally prefer the input, taxing at the input end, as I said, with severance tax, because depletion is spatially more concentrated than pollution, and also because a higher input price induces efficiency at all subsequent upstream stages of the production process. And furthermore, limiting depletion ultimately limits pollution. 
at least in a gross aggregative sense by the law of conservation of matter and energy, although I hasten to add that there are qualitative problems of emissions that make that not a sufficient way of dealing with emissions. Um, so in sum, then, I would say tax bads, depletion and pollution, not goods, income. Does anyone imagine that we currently tax income at the optimal rate? Better just first start taxing the right thing and later on worry about the optimal rate and figure out how to get there. Uh, politically, I think people really don't like to see the value added by their own efforts taxed away, value added taxes, even though we accept it as necessary up to a point. But most people do not mind seeing resource scarcity rents taxed away, value that no one added taxed away. Remember Henry George. Uh, and so why not, uh, why not move in that direction? And furthermore, the major benefit of the carbon tax, or at least would be climate stability, a benefit in which everyone shares. The revenue from the carbon uh, severance tax could be rebated, rebated to the public by abolishing other taxes, especially regressive ones. And even though the incidence of the tax by itself is regressive with respect to income, it still has the advantage that it is paid by all consumers, including income tax evaders and avoiders. Well, setting policy then in accordance with first principles, with relatively certain first principles, and kind of finessing or ignoring for the time being all the empirical measures, uh, that allows us to act now without getting mired in endless delays caused by the uncertainties of complex empirical measurements and predictions. Of course, let me admit that these uncertainties do not disappear. Uh, we will experience them as surprising consequences, both agreeable and disagreeable, necessitating mid-course correction to the policies that we have enacted on the basis of first principles. So recognizing the need for mid-course corrections and realizing that first principles won't answer all questions, I think should be a third uh, policy design principle, build in mid-course corrections. Uh, to continue business as usual while debating the predictions of complex models in a world made even more uncertain by the questions we ask, I think is to fail to pull the ripcord. And that's what our big danger is. And unfortunately, the empirical consequences of this last failure are relatively certain. So thank you for your attention. Uh, If there are, are there any questions? Are you running for president? <laughs> Pardon? <laughs> what did he say? Are you running for president? Uh, <laughs> no, I'd be run over. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And um, years ago, back, well, in 
the early 90s, there was a lot more discussion, it seemed, uh, you know, with regard to talking about ecological tax reform. Uh, what I'm curious about is you referenced a few new or books that were out, but I was just curious in terms of whether you were seeing any any other like real discussion among colleagues in any of the associations of U.S. economists um, uh, around you know where where this is starting to be put on the uh, you know on the table in terms of how to deal with these issues and in terms of really talking about how to deal with the, the economics. Yeah, well, I think as we heard this morning, there is there is this growing discussion of price versus quantity, of, of taxes. They don't say ecological tax reform so much anymore. They just say carbon tax. But I think if you say ecological tax reform, it's kind of better because that encompasses the uh, the the uh, what do you call it? The revenue neutrality aspect and the and the counteraction of of the regressivity of the carbon tax and so on. Uh, that versus the uh, cap and trade. And I have always thought in terms of uh, cap auction and trade. Cap and trade without an auction is just, you know, I'm, I'm ready to forget that. Just push that over to one side. Uh, I don't even want to hear about that one. Uh, but cap trade and au cap auction and trade. So those are, are getting a lot of good discussion. I can't honestly say that the, prof that the economics profession has taken the lead in this discussion. I mean, there's their important work, you know, RFF does important work. But even RFF, which I consider sort of mainstream, is from the point of view of the real mainstream, I mean, you guys are off to one side. So I think, uh, you know, we need to do a little missionary work on our profession and get some of the really, some of these really big brains uh, working on, on this. I, I don't know why it, it hasn't been, uh, you know, it's, it's this growth fixation, I guess, is as close as I can come to it. Whatever uh, doesn't fit within the, the uh, theology of growth is, it's hard to get in. One of the differences between the U.S. and Europe is that our population is growing considerably more rapidly, and one sort of has to have a fair amount of growth in some sense in order to meet that potential population. Could you comment on how things are going in the U.S. versus Europe, given your impression? I mean, here we sort of have growth and aren't taxing consumption. They, they do it a little bit differently. They don't mm -hmm. have growth. Are they making progress to where you want to be? where you think we can get to be? Well, I guess I'm not that well informed on on Europe. I, I do know, I, I think they have been more more willing to um, take the advantage of uh, technical progress in the form of increased leisure or less working hours, and we have wanted it more in terms of products and work. Uh, population, my, my notion of the steady state economy goes back to John Stuart Mill, uh, classical economist, and his definition was constant population of people and constant population of physical capital stocks. So you, you um, so I think population 
equilibrium is part of the definition, in my view, of a steady state economy. And uh, that, of course, creates, uh, you know, some problems about how, how do we do that. Uh, and as I don't need to say that, but in the United States, population policy, and, it, and I guess in Canada as well, and more and more, and probably Western Europe, uh, has become almost uh, synonymous with immigration policy because the natural rate of increase is leveling off, but the immigration issue is, is, is really huge. And, you know, we're seeing that come up from, the, uh, from being submerged into public discussion. Not all of the public discussion may be, may be pleasing to everyone's ears, uh, but um, it's, it, to me it's a very interesting question because if you believe the polls, the public opinion polls, at least in the United States, 75% of people really want to see immigration controlled. That's what they say on the polls. But the, the actual, you know, what the government does is really not much in that direction. So there's a big, a big uh, disconnect. And finally, that disconnect is coming to the surface. And I think we'll, we'll in both legitimate and unhappy ways, will become more and more important. Not sure that gets at your question. I kind of got off on it. But, uh, Any last questions? Okay, well, we are uh, due back in the other room in just a few minutes.